This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to another episode of Untamed Ethos. I am Joshua Wilson, and with me is Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes. Today, I've got a few things on my mind, and we'll see what's on uh, Dr. Vix's mind today. I'm, I'm thinking about where the markets are at year to date. I'm just checking the, the uh, crypto versus markets and the Russell um, versus the SPX, and also thinking about the divergence between stocks and bonds. Uh, it does look like that the market is catching its breath after being, uh, to quote Talladega Nights, all jacked up on Mountain Dew last week. And by Mountain Dew, I mean AI, one of the hot topics of the day. So uh, I'd love to talk today uh, to, to Dr. Vix about uh, really the 60-40 portfolio, how it's struggling, the divergence between stocks and bonds, and really um, some of the things that that the themes that I noticed in the Wealth Management Edge Conference, which I attended a couple of weeks ago down in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, so I'll talk to him about some of the themes that I noticed coming up, especially alternatives, active ETFs and AI. Really, uh, as I see it, managers looking for ways to diversify their portfolios and find ways of, of accessing returns and not pure market beta uh, during this difficult environment when 60-40 is particularly, um, we'll say, less attractive uh, than than usual to be kind. But before we jump into that, Russell, what's on your mind today? Oh, I think two words. And it's uh, mid-morning Wednesday, the last day of May, May 31st. So we don't have a resolution yet, but debt ceiling. Debt Everybody's, ceiling. Yeah, it, it seems to be. I mean, there. I, I was checking the news on it before we got going. And CNN basically does an update every 30 minutes right now on how it how it's going. So uh, it could get in the in the next 58 minutes, it could get resolved. It could get resolved, or we could just get or, real real angry uh, yeah. as as these these things. Speak, speaking of angry, I heard the only Democrat that's come out against it is AOC. Really? Yeah. The only one. I, I, the only I, I saw how many what's Democrats our, what's many Republicans the, were the, against are the, are it. There the were words? 30 30 Republicans, but. The what's her problem only, with it? Is only it, is the it, angry congresswoman from New York. What's her problem with it? Is it too many big words? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Beyond seeing that in the headline, I moved on. <laughs> well, I honestly don't care what her problem is with it. Well, the, the last time that she really kind of ran across my, my radar, I was delightfully surprised because she was working on, um, uh, she was working on that, that, um, that proposal that uh, that I thought was a good idea with uh, what that they can't that they're not going to be allowed to own stocks anymore. That's because uh, I, I haven't seen her portfolio. Maybe she hasn't been. Able, maybe it hasn't impacted her yet. So she's pro Congress can't own stocks anymore. Uh, before that, when I, when you said when she was on your radar, the thing that's always stood out to me is her just blowing up Amazon, putting their head putting a second headquarters in Long Island. 
It was good. It was Amazon, wasn't yeah. it? Oh yeah, the, she is. She I mean, is job destroyer be, extraordinaire. No one. How can you be proud of that? And how could you vote for somebody that screwed up? You know, tens of thousands of great jobs coming into your your neighborhood. So that's really where I thought you were going to go with that one. And and needless to say, we're talking about. De- I, I I didn't think we would mention AOC at all today. Yeah, I had no we, we constantly go off the script. I, I, I will say, you know. It's sad when, when, when people when I hear about, oh, she, but she got a degree in this and she got a degree in this. It just makes me wonder if they're making those degrees out with crayon because apparently she has a degree in economics and <laughs> oh my Lord. Uh, but like I said, the, the thing that, you know, the, the one redeeming quality that I've seen in, in her since, you know, intellect is definitely not it and, um, and awareness and, several other things, but she, you know what? Life experience is not there. Life experience is is definitely not that professional experience is definitely not there. Um, I would, I'd trust her to make me a a good old fashioned actually. I heard she makes a great mojito. Oh, that's that. So I'd say I probably trust her that, but she has been willing to work with folks. Um, you know, she was talking to, to Gates and I think a year or two ago she was talking to, um, Oh, what's his name from Texas? I, suddenly I'm blanking on his, uh, uh, ran for president. Oh, um, not Rubio, but the, um, Texas. Yeah, uh, no, no. Uh, Ru- Cruz, Rubio Cruz. She worked with Ted Cruz a couple of years ago and, uh, and that was, um, and nobody likes Ted Cruz. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's my understanding is that, well, you're down there in Texas. The, you know, he, he's just, apparently he's, not a terribly likable guy, but maybe she's not a terribly likable girl. And they ended up in the same corner at the dance with nobody else to talk to. I, I, I can see that. Like, I, <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. So, so, so debt ceiling, um, you know, yeah. assuming we get this thing resolved and by the way, again, this is the uh, May 31st, Wednesday, May 31st that we're filming this, we're filming it a little later in the week than, than usual. So hopefully we get this published the next day or two, but assuming we get this fixed, what impact is this going to have on debt markets? I mean, this has been a lot of pent up waiting with, for this to get done. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's, um, there, there's going to be an issue and, you know, economics goes back to supply and demand and um, their, their government has not been issuing debt in the and once they get this thing resolved one of the first things they're going to have to do is issue uh, a ton and i don't know the exact number but a very large amount of debt is going to come to the market and you got to wonder what's going to happen to the money that first off are bonds coming under pressure right now because everybody's waiting for this it's almost like a secondary for a stock Right. You know, if I'm thinking about buying stock shares at XYZ and XYZ um, announces announces this morning when I'm about to start buying shares that they're going to do a secondary and that's going to put pressure on the stock. I'm going to wait. So I'm wondering if there's some fixed income investors that are in cash right now that are hoping to get uh, a really good yield uh, and lock in a really good yal on government debt when uh, they're allowed to issue it once again. And if there's going to be this weird noise for a short period of time that's already started with anticipation of the debt ceiling, 
but then you know, how's it going to resolve itself at the end? Waiting. Yeah. Waiting. When people wait, they don't do anything. And so, you know, maybe they're staying away from the bond market right now and, and waiting to see if they can get a better deal. So I do think that if you're, if you're, if you think that the old 60-40, which has not worked, it may work now. And it has a better chance of working now because what do you need for bond prices to go up? You need rates to go down. When, you know, when interest rates were even for risky stuff in the mid single digits, uh, how likely were those numbers to come down regardless of, you know, what's going on in the economy or what the Fed tries to do? And the Fed couldn't have done anything to make um rates go down and bond prices go up when everybody was worried about the overall economy. So it's in, in Monday morning quarterbacking and looking back is real, real, real easy. And I know that, but you just got to think about if you're thinking about investing in bonds, you know, that's really an outlook on what's going to happen to rates. And unless you think rates are going to go to a negative number, uh, the the risk reward behind putting money in bonds over the past couple of years has been terrible. I mean, it's getting a lot better because interest rates have climbed up to a level where they, now they have some room to drop and increase bond prices. But that is happening at the same time that it looks like it might be the free and clear to buy stocks. Yeah. And, and just circling back for, 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 for listeners that may need a little more explanation is, um, you know, uh, bond prices and yields are move inverse to each other. This is for because anytime you you've got new bonds coming on the market, you have to understand that they're competing with bonds that have already been issued. Right. Unlike a stock which exists in perpetuity, assuming that the, the, it doesn't go private or go bankrupt mm -hmm. or something like that. But otherwise, it um, exists in perpetuity a bond is issued at a fixed uh for a fixed premium for a fixed date generally there are adjustable things but in general um fixed rate for fixed fixed time frame and fixed rate so if you have a a bond that you have bought for a thousand dollars at a five percent interest rate you have to say okay what if i want to sell that bond to someone else before it matures well, if interest rates go from 5% to 6% and someone could buy a new bond for 6%, then why would they pay you $1,000 for your bond that's, um, that's yielding 5%? So what that means is that price of the market price, what you could get if you tried to sell that bond on the open market, the price of that bond will go down um, in a pretty easy to calculate way. Um, I'm doing that right now. Doing that right now. <laughs> I am. I'm saying, all right, you got a 5% five-year uh, treasury bond and rates go to 6%. Price that bond's going to go down by $43. So you're going to be down, you're going to lose 4.3%. There you go. So yeah. that's, that, and that $43 doesn't sound like a lot, but when it's, um, when it's uh, over the course of a thousand dollars, it it means a lot. That's for well, and in performance, performance wise, it that that could be a big difference, especially it's if huge. all of a sudden you decide to go forty and rates go up again. On the other side of it, if rates drop to four percent, you're up about four point four percent. It would yeah. go to two thousand forty four, and that's and that's what we're talking about. Most people think about bonds and think about buying them and living off of the the income from those bonds. That's uh, my uncle Donald uh, was a grumpy old man. 
And he, uh, he got really upset when he had, he opened up his retirement statement, which was all corporate bonds and the price of all the corporate bonds had gone down. And I said, well, this was at a Thanksgiving. We were, we were getting into shouting. He was the one to argue with. And I said, well, do you plan on selling them or are you just living off the income and going to hold them to maturity? Well, I'm going to live off the income and hold them to maturity. So why are you upset about the unrealized losses there? Yeah, then you don't matter. Then, then those losses. different motivations on bonds. Yeah, and that's the other thing is, you know, where where the bond, if if you are holding to maturity, and it uh, then it, it doesn't matter so much to you as long as you're getting the same interest rate payment, right? Um, yeah, because the yeah. the because that this can be confusing for a lot of people is just because the price of the of a bond goes down, the market price that doesn't mean that the quality has necessarily deteriorated. Right. Yes. If, uh, if you, you know, if you've bought a corporate bond uh, from a company and their, um, their credit quality goes down, yes, you could lose money because of that or in the unrealized, um, unrealized losses. But at maturity, if you hold that bond to maturity at maturity, assuming that company hasn't gone bankrupt or something like that, you'll get the full value of, the bond uh, back, right? So, what the, so the reason this is important is if you're thinking in terms of buying bonds that you want to own for a long period of time, um, the best time to buy bonds is when interest rates have peaked. Now, yep. buying bonds um, before interest rates go up that uh, that 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 stinks because you're going to see the value of your portfolio. Uh, your bond portfolio go down because you've bought you know bonds at three percent now bonds are five percent six percent whatever you're going to see the unrealized uh, value of your bonds go down and that doesn't feel good um, mm -hmm. even though if you're rational and you think well if i'm holding these bonds then they will go back up because they will still mature at the thousand dollars that they were that they were issued at, or whatever their, whatever the denomination that they were at, I'll use thousand dollars as a as a automatic, um, but they were still mature at the value that they were issued at. So if you're thinking about you know buying bonds, the time to do it is when you think that interest rates have peaked and they're about to go down, uh, or peaked and going to stay there for a while. Well, the uh, the market thinks we're getting another hike. Oh, yeah. That's uh, since we spoke last, um, and, and I'm looking at the uh, the CME using the derivative prices, not people's opinions, which I could care less about. I always I always go with what the market's telling you. This time last week, there was a 66 percent chance that we would be unchanged, and a 33 percent chance that they would raise, and those numbers have basically flipped. So we're looking at one more hike at the June 14th meeting, which uh, two weeks from today, actually. Oh, yeah. So, Russell, so take a moment and explain to, to us what we sure. mean by the market. So, for example, when, when you say, I'm going to slow this down, when you say people's opinions, okay, well, people's opinion matter. And it's one of those things that one person's opinion uh -huh. versus polling of a thousand people's opinions you know, it's like it's like when when someone defends an argument by saying, "Well, that's not my experience." For yeah. example, if you say that you know, uh, eighty percent of the time, you know, studies show that eighty percent of the time this is correct, and someone replies, "Well, that's not my experience." And my I experienced that to be the opposite. 
It's like, okay, yeah, you well, got Then you have to find four other people. By, by definition, by definition, you mm-hmm. are in the 20%. You've not proven the 80% wrong, mm-hmm. but your opinion does matter. And it's true that this is not always correct, right? It would be the same thing as saying, you know, I don't know what the percentage is of eye color, but, you know, um, 70% of people have brown eyes. Well, that's not my experience. My whole family has blue eyes. Okay, well, your family is in the 30%. That's that's fair. No, no yeah. problem. So when you say you don't care about people's opinions, it's uh, the way I read that is, well, I don't, one person's opinion is not what drives the market. It is a big collection of opinions and uh, a, people that believe the same thing tend to, um, it's not, that, not so much that they are necessarily right, but they tend uh-huh. to exert a behavioral force on making things right right if i mm-hmm. if if everyone believes the stock market's going up um and that and that influences their choices in buying stocks assuming the belief influences the behavior then markets tend to go up so when you say the the market is uh, is expecting something explain to the listeners what you mean by the market is expecting well what are the odds for Auburn to win the SEC this year? Uh, not great, but, right, but significantly improved over what they were four months ago. See, there you go. Well, because uh, they, what, transfer portal and you putting a the, bunch of money in the NIL? The, yeah, that's it. The new, yeah. new coach is, uh, is, 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 is killing it on the recruiting track and he's killing it in their transfer portal. So, you so know. Might have a shot. Can, well, the you can you can take what the Vegas odds would be, where people are putting money to work, not yeah. not not just saying, well, I think they you know they they've got a better than fifty percent shot of winning the SEC West or something right. like that, which never mind. Um, but you can you can back into those predictions using Vegas odds. Well, you can back into the mind of the market using derivative pricing. And what the um, what the CME does, and they share it they 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 share it on their website, is they take um, Fed fund futures pricing, and they figure out what the Fed fund futures are pricing in for the target rate uh, based on the net you know based on actual market prices matching up the, and matching that up with the next announcement date, and this time last week taking those taking that pricing. Uh, they were saying two thirds of a chance we're going to be unchanged, and that number has slowly but surely. In fact, uh, early last week it was seventy five percent chance of unchanged, and over the course of the past few days, it has moved to um, <clears throat> you know a chance that we're going to get one more hike. Everybody felt like we were done after the last meeting, and that opinion held up for a couple of weeks with people putting money to work, not just people talking, and. The reason that I say I don't care what people say uh, is I really don't care what economists say as far as their predictions of these things go. Yeah, uh, there and and there's all kinds of jokes about economists and weathermen or or you know have about the same uh, hit rate uh, on being right. But if you look, you know, the market pricing, uh, especially derivatives, which are the odds of something happening. Uh, the mind of the market tends to be right more often than not. And I would favor where people are putting money to work as opposed to somebody just saying, this is what I think is going to happen. Yeah. So you're saying that this is a way of measuring uh, 
money versus mouth. Yep, exactly. I don't care so much about the mouth. I care about the money. And by the way, when, when you when you look at money versus mouth, that tells you how much power is put behind words. For example, mm-hmm. you know, um, if if Russell and I agree on an opinion, and I put a thousand dollars to work to in support of that opinion, and he puts ten thousand dollars to work in support of that opinion, whose opinion matters more? Russell's well, obviously as influence in the market, I guess mine would a bit more. Exactly. So. Exactly. But, um, if I've got, you know, 10,000 followers and Russell's got 10,000 followers and, um, his post just gets just as many views as mine gets, we get the same amount of views, but he actually, but, but the voice may have the same value, but the, but the money is 10 times as much, right? Yeah. And we, and that's one of the things that's really difficult to, 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 um, this is, this is why it's tough when you, when you look on these, these squawk boxes and things like that, they're always looking for people that have different opinions. Why? Mm. Cause they want to tell both sides of the story, but one of those stories might be a minority opinion. And, um, and by the way, minority opinion doesn't necessarily matter if that's, if everybody agrees that something is true, but all the money is being put in the opposite, right? Because you can have, you know, 70% of people that agree on something, but they're not putting their money behind it. And that is where where it's it's, it's a hard stop on something like that. Whoa. You can be in line with all the opinions, but if you're not in, but, but, all the opinions, if they're not putting, if they're not willing to put money behind their opinion, those opinions don't matter so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also say, I'd also add to that, that, um, you know, there's a lot of voices that uh, I, I've refer, I've heard them referred to as perma bears. Um, and that means permanent bears. Those, those mm-hmm. talking figures that are always bearish they're always calling for the market crash and and then when the market eventually crashes or or has a a, a correction um, or enters a bear market and we typically define a bear market is is down 20 percent from um, from the highs um, people can disagree on that but they they can they can have been calling for this bear market or this crash for six years seven years eight years and then when it happens, they're all over social media and all over CNBC being the guy that called the crash. Well, he called it eight years ago. I, you know, I tried doing that for, for several years. I just tried to be bearish all the time and I figured I could make a career out of being right. And, um, it never happened. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, if you're not willing to put a time period on something like that, I'm calling a market crash. Just shut up, shut up. You know, don't, or don't how are you, or you know, explain how would you, if I were on if I were on any of those networks and somebody said well you know I I think the Fed and somebody put a big trade on around this I've got to dig out some more information on this one uh, back in early spring somebody put on a trade that only pays off if the Fed funds rate gets to six percent by the end of the summer which is probably not going to happen now but nobody was predicting that so the payoff was like fifty to one yeah. if they were right. So, you know, very risky trade versus, um, you know, the, the reward if they're right, but they're not going to be right on that one. Well, but I, put, I get more respect to somebody doing that than somebody just saying, yeah, I think rates are going to go to 6%. Somebody puts $10 million up, that, uh, that, that resonates a lot more with me. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and call it that the, the market is going to crash again in my lifetime. Uh, so you, you heard it here first. Is More likely in your lifetime than mine. <laughs> I, 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 that is technically correct. Um, yeah, more likely. <laughs> Year to date, SBX, at least as of this morning, um, up just a hair under 10%. Dow's flat. NASDAQ uh, up over 25%. Bitcoin is just crushing it, uh, at least uh, year to, on, the, on the year to date number. 63, 63%. Ethereum uh, over 55%. What are your thoughts on, on almost driving this? Is this more of a, uh, a, a worries? Is this worries on, um, on uh, cash and things like that? Or. No, I think, uh, well, first off, if over the la going back to last day of May last year, uh, Bitcoin is down and Ethereum is up. That's not sexy. We don't talk about that. I'm sorry. That's just, I know that's just boring stuff, but <laughs> Ethereum's up, you know, about 3%. And the uh, this time last year, uh, I think we'd just broken 30,000. Uh, and uh, we were a little over 29,000. Now we're at 26 and change. Uh, the uh, Bitcoin is down 10% from this time last year. So I know it's exciting that it's had a really good year, uh, but uh, year over year, you know, on a full 12 month basis, uh, more love is going to Ethereum than Bitcoin. I, 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 I'm, I'm not a software engineer. I'm, I'm not an IT person. I, I do understand some things about programming and I understand what's involved in using Ethereum and using Bitcoin. And Ethereum's just got better technology. Uh, it just doesn't have that big name brand thing. It's kind of like uh, VHS versus Betamax. Betamax was a better deal, was supposedly better technology. Uh, th these were things that you put tapes into a machine and you watched movies on TV back in the day. Uh, for anybody under like 30 and the Betamax had better technology, but VHS had wider adoption. Uh, you know, Bitcoin appears to be having, you know, gets more attention, has ETFs that attract money, going to have another ETF uh, for a two times Bitcoin ETF in the near future. Uh, but I think Ethereum is the better one to, to, to place the long-term bet on if you're going to bet on either of them. And it's showing up through price performance. Uh, there's always this belief in the crypto space that at some point, the market cap of Ethereum will be greater than the market cap of Bitcoin. Uh, it might take a while longer than a lot of people thought that it would. Uh, but the only reason that, the, that crypto, that Bitcoin has done well this year, it, it's really just uh, the fear of missing out in a chasing trade. A lot of the outperformance this year has been FOMO trades. And I'll guarantee uh, a whole lot of people are regretting doing this, but I'll guarantee there are a bunch of people that jumped back on the Bitcoin bandwagon when it topped 30,000. Yeah. Because they looked at it at 30 when I believe that the high is closer to 64. Somewhere. I know it's more than a double from 30, uh, but I, I feel like that last push in Bitcoin really came from uh, the break above 30. And now we're, you know, managed to stay above 30 for a week or two. And now we're just kind of stuck again. Uh, it just, it, it always seems to get stuck. It, maybe it's a home for 
you know, money when you can't find anywhere else to put money, but as a long-term value and a long-term use case, I just don't think it's, it's not something I'd be chasing for sure. Well, we'll have an opportunity next week, actually. This is a good uh, opportunity to plug next week. Plug, plug, plug. We have uh, Dan Weisskopf coming on next week, uh, lead ETF strategist at ETF Think Tank. Uh, Also the PM on uh, the Block ETF, symbol B-L-O-K. And that's, uh, if you're not familiar with that ETF, uh, folks, it, it, it invests in companies that are actively involved in the development and utilization of transformational data sharing technology. So Dan will, if you're interested in, in, in crypto, uh, Dan will be uh, a good a good one to um, for us to discuss that with. And feel free to, uh, if you have a, if you if you view, if you're able to view this before that episode comes on, send me uh, send me your questions, and uh, and we'll we'll get get those in front of in front of Dan. Also, um, as another plug, I think in the last episode of this month uh, of June, or sorry, June, uh, we'll be uh, we'll have Michael Gad got Michael Gayad uh, on the on the show, um, the outspoken and interesting portfolio manager um, and publisher of the Lead Lag Report, also multi award winning author. I think he's got a couple Dow awards and uh, other things uh, under his belt as well. So have a couple of big names already scheduled for, for the month of June and one more that we'll be nailing down actually for June uh, as we begin to bring, bring more guests on the, on the show. Yeah. I think those are two very good ones. I have a third one in the back of my mind, but we got to pin him down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk. Um, let's see. What do we want to talk about? The we, one thing I mentioned before was the divergence in stocks and bonds. And I think we're seeing a lot of this in discussions in the wealth management industry, you know, as as PMs are looking when I say PMs, by the way, folks, I mean, portfolio managers are looking for diversification and obviously other sources of uh, of, of growth. Right. And mm-hmm. I was just at the um, wealth management edge ETF Edge conference last uh, a couple weeks ago in in uh, Hollywood, Florida, and the thing that I noticed a lot, which Cynthia Murphy, by the way, um, published a nice kind of summary piece on um, Cynthia Murphy again, also from the ETF Think Tank, uh, which she titled "Triple A of Hot ETF Themes: Alts, Active, and AI," and that was a great summary. Um, you know, I, I was on a Twitter Spaces with um, Gayad and Wisecop and Cynthia, and uh, also Bob Elliott um, was on there um, from uh, Unlimited Funds. And if you're not familiar with uh, um, with Bob Elliott from Unlimited Funds, uh, Bob Elliott was um, on the investment committee at Bridgewater uh, with uh, with Ray Dalio, and uh, he's got a, an ETF out that really. Um, mimics the performance of the hedge fund index. And so I had a great conversation about him. He's also a future guest uh, on the, on the show. But one of the things I I mentioned on that show is, man, I feel like I'm hearing nothing but active ETFs. And what, and of course my first question is, what does that mean to you? Because it means different things to different people. Is this algorithmic? Is this, you know, Mm -hmm. this truly unconstrained? How, how active is it? And, 
um, you know, there's some great tools out there that Think Tank provides for seeing just how active something is, something is, right? Versus is it really just hugging the index, you know? But mm -hmm. yeah, it, it was a lot about alternatives. How do we get into things that don't perform just like stocks or just like bonds? That's what generally I try to say that is the simplest explanation of alternatives that I can mean, but I, it's not a great definition. It's just a very layman's definition. Um, and then who is incorporating our artificial intelligence? I think there's a lot of new funds coming to market on artificial intelligence. I don't think the market's going to be able to soak up all of them. So we'll see which ones um, actually, um, actually perform well. And I think we'll be interesting to see what active um, is, if we can clearly define what active means. Cause like I said, it mm -hmm. doesn't mean the same thing um, to everyone, but um, I know, I know you, you and I, um, you mentioned something to me recently about uh, more interest in options based ETFs. As obviously options are a passion for both, for both you and I, what are you seeing um, Russell in terms of alternatives, ETFs and, and other investment vehicles? Well, the, the alternative space, it, it's just a, it, it's another chase in my mind mm -hmm. with it, people are trying to figure out where other people were making money and alternatives. You'll hear a lot of great stories about, um, you know, even, even alternatively it, you know, investing privately in companies back in 2022 and being able to cite fairly decent low volatility numbers behind that performance. Well, you're calculating your volatility using monthly estimates of the value of what you own. So there might be a disconnect from reality there. Uh, the last time this happened was about a decade ago where there were uh, a handful of, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't as easy as uh, to create an ETF 10 years ago as it is now. Uh, and they've got an ETF for just about everything. Um, but when you, you know, when you see an area that's performed fairly well and you hear people asking, how can I invest in it? So you, you know, you, run out there and create an ETF around that strategy, maybe even a strategy they don't fully understand, uh, you're going to attract some initial capital. But, you know, are, are you, is, is whatever was working going to continue to work? And, you know, it's great that you probably have a disconnect in performance versus traditional bond and stock, uh, you know, bond and stock returns. But, you know, having a different performance than bonds and stocks can be achieved by going to zero. And a lot of strategies that work very well, that maybe incorporate some leverage to work very well, uh, those are not going to work in the future. Uh, the, I, I had the chance to uh, interview Ed Thorpe once. And whenever you interview somebody like on, the, like on here, if we had a guest, uh, when we turn the camera off, we're always going to try to slip in one little question to to you know that that they may not answer publicly. And my question to him was, "Where are you looking in the markets right now?" And th this is a smart guy. He freaking created uh, cheating at blackjack. Uh, you know, he created counting cards, excuse me, and also created a way to uh, beat roulette tables based on where the ball starts to fall versus the the spin of the wheel. I mean, he 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 really is always looking at places people aren't looking. And that's what he said with respect to doing well in the markets. Look and play. I'm always looking for things that other people aren't looking at. So if you got a slew of ETFs coming out in the liquid alt space, and when I say a slew, maybe a couple of dozen over the course of the summer, in my mind, that means it's probably a little late 
to be investing in whatever strategy is being put out there like that. Also, alternative returns are, are not as smooth as market-related returns. And if you really want to get alternative exposure, you need to have a very high risk tolerance and a very long time frame as well. If, if you invest in distressed securities, well, you haven't really had great opportunities in distressed securities over the last decade, but now all of a sudden you are. Uh, if you were in a distressed fund, you probably uh, were flat, maybe even down a little bit for several years. But now over the next couple of years with uh, higher interest rates, the market being more difficult for marginal companies, you're going to have a lot of opportunities to invest in distressed securities. I'll guarantee they're not... Uh, too many ETFs out that are that are being launched right now to look uh, for companies going out of business and be able to scoop up their assets at a very low price. And then another part of that is when you do that, uh, it can take some time for the value of those assets to come back. So the alternative space, it, each little niche of alternatives has a really good day in the sun. Uh, but typically when they've they've had really good performance for a month or two, uh, that is not the time to be chasing performance in those strategies. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I would probably not be willing to make to say it in such a sweeping way that by the time it comes to market, it's it's the opportunity is passed. I think that the majority of the opportunities passed for sure. I I, I definitely think that. Um, that things are coming to market faster than ever. Um, in the ETF space, um, especially, and when there is a the, the 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 issue, I think is some of these bigger firms, especially, can just print ETFs, you know, like an iShares, oh, yeah. and they can just print ETFs, and so it, for them, it's just we just print these ETFs and we give it six months and see if it gathered enough assets, see if there's an interest there. Um, so they're not, they're, they're really doing it by throwing things against, you know, throwing it against the wall and see what sticks. And so that's a, a problem that I have there. <clears throat> I also think that there's, that, that for something to be truly um, valuable, that there probably needs to be an ability to change direction within that fund. And yeah, that's tough to do because, you know, as you said, if you're, if you're committing your ETF to one topic and it's something that's going to have a day in the sun, um, and that's all you can ever invest in. That's tough because yeah. when money flows out of the, of, of the interest in that, in that strategy, your, your ETF folds. Whereas you, if you, if you have the ability to say, to actively manage the allocations and say, this is an, uh, this is an alternatives fund and it is not, does not required to keep 80% of the assets in this particular type of asset class, then you've got some opportunity to move into something into something else. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think your other point about, um, you know, the, how the returns are distributed <laughs> and, you know, and you're, you're saying this and, you know, it, and I, I kind of laughed at myself when you said, you know, not as, uh, not as, I think, I forget the word you use, not as dependable or not as, uh, the returns are not as smooth or something like that as equity typical markets. And of course we're smooth as the equity markets, which are not smooth. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the market, the, the, the funny, but the market is it never does the average and it's yeah. kind of designed not to, right. It's, um, when, when you, when you, if you look at the, the performance over time, the, 
there's a lot more variation in returns than one would expect. And, you know, this, this came up a lot when um, I ran option strategies and we were doing overlays in portfolios, for example. And it was, so, you know, when you're doing a, an overlay that's, that's designed to generate an additional in, layer of income on the portfolio, on an existing portfolio, that's what I mean by an overlay strategy for those who aren't familiar. Um, you can trade op, you can use the margin in the account from owning stocks, bonds, et cetera, to trade mm -hmm. options um, for the purpose of generating income. And people like to look at the performance record over a year and they want to extrapolate it over months. And they say, oh, you know, something like, you know, 6% a year. So like half percent a month. No, definitely not half percent a month. You know, this could be 2% yeah. and then negative half percent and then positive half percent and then negative 1% and then positive 3%. And oh, at the end, by the end of the year, yeah, it was up 6%. Um, but, or we generated 6% of income on the year, but that doesn't mean that every month is, is that way. And also people can tend to think, you know, get in, get it. They start fixating to a certain return and they don't acknowledge that the amount of risk needed to generate that return is going to fluctuate. Yeah. And so tremendously. Yes. And with options in particular, um, if you tell, if you, if you say, I, mean, I, I need to generate 1% of income this month, you can do that. In fact, mm -hmm. you can do that every single month. You can generate 1% of income on your portfolio every single month, but the amount of risk it takes to generate 1% of income every month or any other number, whatever, is going to fluctuate dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 1% this month is not the same thing as 1% next month. But if you just look at the, at the returns as your, um, as your gauge of how well a strategy is functioning is going to give you a false, a false idea of how well something is going. Because mm -hmm. if you're continuing to take more and more and more risk to get the same amount of income, um, then eventually you're going to fall on your face, right? That's not, a, that's not a good look. And so often people fixate to income and with alternatives. And again, this is the thing about alternatives is there's so many things that are thrown into the bucket of alternatives. What do you mean by alternatives? Well, you know, we typically, you know, when we, when we refer to 60, 40 portfolio, we're referring to this very general idea of, um, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Now, I'm not saying everyone should do that way, but that's kind of a benchmark for a basic diversified portfolio. Now within stocks, you do different types of stocks and bonds, you do different types of bonds. Um, but this alternatives is basically saying anything but stocks and bonds. That's a terrible definition for alternatives, oh, yeah. by the and way. It's, it's absolutely atrocious, but that's mm -hmm. typically what you kind of, what, what the what what the pop culture, if you will, definition of alternatives is. And mm -hmm. and there's so many things that are very, very, very different. I feel the same way about the term hedge fund. Um, you know, when you hear hedge fund, you'd think that they were hedging. And uh, most of them don't. <laughs> They're not built to hedge. And so I think that this gets interesting when you start saying alternatives, because, well, where's real estate going there? Is real estate more like a stock or, well, some things actually sound more like a, a hybrid of a stock and a bond and certain things that, uh, that you can do in real estate really aren't a stock or a bond. They are truly an alternative. And so mm -hmm. when you say, well, what about real estate? Well, it 
depends. It could, it could feel more like any of these buckets, but it doesn't firmly belong in any of them unless it's a publicly traded real estate stock. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're owning a, a company that does real estate. That's mm -hmm. a stock, right? Um, so I think that's my big issue with alternatives is everything is just lumped into that. And it's hard for people to see the, to see what, what's different. Right. Yeah. And then of course you mentioned the, uh, the difference in the, you know, in the returns. Well, you know, the, the whole point of doing something is, you know, you can have something that does nothing this year, nothing next year, loses 1% next year, gains 1% the year after. And then all of a sudden in year five, you know, it's up 25%. Mm -hmm. And, but if you watched it for four years and it, you got tired of it. This is dead weight in my portfolio. I want to invest in something that has that has done well recently and that makes me feel good. And we forget the purpose of alternatives in our portfolio. Um, and it's hard for advisors to continue justifying owning something when people want a want it now. And then when it actually hits and then people want it once it's made 25 percent. Now people, everybody wants it. And now we're going to we're going to pile into it and the opportunity may have uh, have passed until another two years, six years, nine years, one year, whatever. You don't know when that's going to hit again. And yeah. this is one of the hardest things about putting together a portfolio, I think, is is understanding that all the dynamics are not the same, that we're not always looking for what's going to pop tomorrow. And there's very little way to, to understand what's going to necessarily going to, it's going to pop tomorrow. Now, optimally, we always only buy things that are right about to pop right before they're about to pop. But if that, if it was that easy, then the opportunity wouldn't be there. You have to. And, and oh, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the fundamentals behind making money in, in the financial markets, uh, you know, if you're, if you're just around and you're not really monitoring your portfolio or anything, just, you know, stick with, a long-term tried and true performance, but if you're more active and you 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 know you you're very interested, I mean, and this is kind of like your hobby. In addition to trying to grow net worth, uh, you tend to uh, chase a little bit more than you probably should. Uh, you lose your patience because you're taking advantage because you're looking at these things more often than than you should. You know, if you've got a long-term you know outlook for something and it's not working over the past couple of years. Uh, it probably upsets you every time you look at your portfolio. Uh, you know, academic academic literature says we should not look at our retirement accounts more than once a year. And yeah. if we do it more than once a year, we have the uh, their odds are we're going to do something that is not in our own best interest. Yeah, literally, the more the more you look at it, the more likely you are to make an error. And, yep. and, and that's as. This is one of the problems actually with being a professional is you're looking yep. at it all the time. And a lot of professionals more than would admit it touch their, uh, touch their portfolio too often. You know, portfolios in a lot of ways are kind of like a bar of soap. The more you handle it, the smaller it gets. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and you're just, and I'll give an example of, uh, so in our kid, in the accounts that we had for our kids for their college, and one of them's in the room right now, and she's starting college in a couple of months. Um, geez, like 2014, 2015, I bought the GLD ETF for like 10% of their portfolio. And all I ever heard from uh, the other adult that is interested in that performance was, now, why do we own this? Why do we own this? And I was like, at some point, we're either going to see a geopolitical event 
or we're going to see a big spike in inflation before these two kids get off to college. And lo and behold, uh, the GLD ETF ran up to about 190 three times recently. Uh, it, it did in 2020 when we were sort of the end of the COVID thing and people started to think a bit about inflation. Uh, again, around uh, 20, at the beginning of 2022 when we were concerned about inflation. And right now, and I think the right now is more about geopolitical risk. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of, you know, if there's a reason for having it in there for diversification purposes, and the reason is something that has a fundamental argument behind it, uh, you got to remember that fundamental argument when uh, either your client uh, or your significant other is like, why the heck do we own this thing? Um, yeah. You know, thank goodness that one worked out or I'd still be hearing about it. Uh, and thank goodness I didn't let her sell it when she wanted to sell it. Yeah, that's the other thing that's hard about something like that is it's hard to want to trim. You know, I had um, was managing a portfolio. I was taking over a, a turnaround firm in 2019, so it was before COVID. And um, I had um, pushed the investment committee to add gold. There was no gold in the portfolio, and I wanted a sizable portion. And I fought very hard for it and got it. Um, in 2019. And uh, that looked uh, amazing um, in 2020. And then uh, the funny thing about the conversation was that I was the one that wanted to trim gold in, uh, in 2020, you know, and it's guys, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, we, we hit the peak. Um, we, we've already seen kind of coming down. And I'm like, hey, we're, we, 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 uh, we missed out on, on 190. Fair enough. We were never going to hit the peak. But we need to trim this position back and, you know, back now. And because uh, mm -hmm. it's, I, I, I feel like we had, we had got a big, big, big run up on gold and it was just fighting tooth and nail to take some off the table because I'm comfortable with what has gone up. And here's the thing, gold's not going to go up forever. Um, you know, no. gold is not, is, is not a way to get rich, get wealthy. Um, you know, I get it. There's the gold bugs and I am, and I, I, the, the thing I hate so much about gold is that it feels like with gold, you get pushed into conversations that are such a binary is, you know, are you a gold bug who's everything's in gold because the world's going to hell in the handbasket and the only thing that's going to matter is gold. Mm -hmm. So you need to own you know, all gold or sell all your stuff and have, you know, half in gold or 80% in gold, whatever, or it's, you know, um, a lot of folks are get that kind of binary thinking with gold. And when gold does well, it's going to go, you know, it's going to continue to go up forever. And it doesn't, it, it is related to the, to the price of other, of other things. It's also acts more like a commodity sometimes acts more like a currency at other times. Um, it's, it's a, it's a weird asset. It's a very yeah. weird asset. It's not like, just like other commodities. It's not just like other currencies and um, you know, trimming something like that, that is as, during a time like COVID, when the world's turned turned upside down, trimming something like that was was very hard to uh, to, to to convince folks to want to do. No, yeah. gold. The beta of gold relative to the stock market is 0.18. Yeah, very low correlation, which it's makes a sense. Good diversification, you know, tool for sure. You know, the active ETF that I was always very envious of. Um, are you familiar with clicks? Uh, not really. I've looked at it. Short brick and mortar, long online retail. Okay. And yeah, it's still in place. Uh, but that, that that's the kind of 
ETF that I would be very, very, that I would, I would spend some time looking into yeah. is one that has a really, you know, that has a, a macro outlook that might play out over the course of a longer period of time. Like maybe short Chinese real estate, long U.S. real estate, something, something like that, because <laughs> I don't think that market recovers for some time. Um, so yeah, I think I the the I think a good alternative space to look into is ETFs that have a uh, a specific strategy, and you know how that strategy will work out in different time di- different time periods, and you can kind of get an idea as to whether that strategy is going to work out when stocks are going up or when fixed income is in favor, or is it a strategy that you know might move in the opposite direction, which is really what you're kind of hoping for. But there needs to be some logical sense as, a, as opposed to, oh, well, this thing was up 12% last year in a down market. It's got to be a good thing to own this year because I think the stock market's going to go up. That is a terrible, terrible historical performance is a terrible reason to invest in something. I, I will always remember the cab driver when he asked me what I was doing in town somewhere and I kind of explained what I did, who told me that I needed to look into a biotech stock that had the ticker SVXY. Oh. That is an inverse volatility ETF. Yeah. Putting all my money in there, they're going to cure everything. It's the best biotech ever. SVXY. And I was like, oh my God, that is a short volatility fund. And this was a, this was after it was up about 100% or so in a year. And just before, it was like January before February of 2018 when the short uh, volatility funds blew up. Yeah. So uh, chasing performance and, and, oh, this is an absolutely great fund. Well, yeah, it was, it was a great fund. It was, you know, up over 100% in 2017 when we had low volatility. Uh, but it gave it all back very, very quickly. Yeah, we but we we love to buy emotion. You know, we, we, yeah. love, we love the things that, that buy things that make us feel good about the future. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to feel good about something that has not been um, performing well recently. We want to yeah. buy into positivity, and that's the the hard thing about investing is you don't want to lose something that's positive. You know, um, and you don't want to add something that that doesn't feel feel positive. Speaking of positive and negative feelings, uh, speculation. I don't know if speculation is the right word, but um, saw a piece about Colorado potentially uh, entering the Big Twelve, of which I am have become a big fan since I have two nephews playing Big Twelve football at OSU and and, and Tech now. Is that going to happen? What do you What do you think about all this? What, what What's What's I got for you? I told I I think it's I think what's going to happen. First off, I believe the Big Twelve has buyer's remorse with uh, a couple of the AAC schools they got. Uh-huh. I think if they had known that the Pac-12 was going to end, that if they had known UCLA and USC were going to leave for the Big Ten, that instead of adding the schools that they added, that they probably would have said, you know. Colorado, Utah, um, Arizona, and Arizona State, if they had known those guys were going to come available, uh, that they would have waited. Yeah. I, 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 I think there is a little buyer's remorse with respect. I mean, they, they'll put a happy face on it, 
But, you know, nobody's really looking forward to that trip to Orlando to play UCF or Central Florida, their real name. Um, You know, especially, uh, you know, Oklahoma and Texas teams. So I wish they had stuck with with the region. And I feel like the Big 12 schools that are remaining have a lot more in common with Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State and Utah than they do with Houston, Cincinnati, Central Florida, and even BYU. I think BYU was an excellent addition. Uh, But the other three, uh, I think they're in for a big surprise (laughs) traveling to Texas three times a year to get your brains beaten out relative to, you know, going to play Temple in Philadelphia and kind of having a cake game in front of 1,200 people in an NFL stadium. Uh, I think they're in for a rude, rude, rude awakening. Uh, or at least those three schools. I think BYU is in pretty good place for that. So they, they added Houston, uh, BYU, Boise State, and Central Florida. Is that right? No, not Boise State. Big 12? Central, Central Florida, Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Houston, and, um, and, and BYU. Cincinnati. And right. really, I think if, if USC and UCLA had, had announced they were going to the Big Ten at the exact same time, that Texas and Oklahoma made their announcement, which I also think they're going to regret, um, that the Big 12 probably would have absorbed those four schools and we'd be done. And then all of a sudden, and this is the direction everything is going, we're going to have fewer BCS schools. Yeah. The conference is, ACC is going to, the, the, the stronger football schools from the ACC are going to break off and they're going to leave a handful of schools behind. Yeah, and need another uh, conference. And and I'll tell you the breakup that that I can see happening that probably is going to be an eye opener to a lot of people is Duke and North Carolina not being in the same conference anymore. Yeah. I think Duke and NC State may end up in some other conference, but probably the top twelve schools out of the ACC, or maybe the top eleven, and they'll go to Notre Dame and they'll say, All right, it's time to poop or get off the pot. Uh, are you joining a spool or are you going somewhere else? Yeah. So, but I, I think there'll be fewer of the up, of the top division football teams, and it the the attendance for across the board, not including 2020 with all the goofiness with COVID, and even up between 2009 and 2019, the average attendance at a um, Division One football game has gone down by 10 percent. And that's consistent across all conferences. Really? Nobody, it, it, yeah. Because I, I would have expected that would be because like, when you hear when I hear that stat, I'm like, well, of course, because when you continue to add, you know, schools um, that are tiny schools, exactly. You know, of course, you know. Yeah, I mean, like you know, uh, the the closest college to where I grew up, which is where my sister, one of my sisters went, and where I have, currently have a niece there is University of North Alabama, who's in the process of getting their conversion from D2 yeah. to D1. And they're, they're going to regret it. Oh, my goodness. I mean, well, it's about the money, right? They get all of a sudden yeah, I mean, counters and things I, like that. But, but, but you look at their attendance, and it's like for a D2 school, they had great attendance, but not even remotely – if you if you put them in the average, I don't know what their stadium seats, but if their stadium's twenty thousand people, and you know they may be packing it out, but that's going to bring down the average of the of the everybody else. You know? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see it, it. You know what? It's just 
like a lot of things, money has gotten in there and completely screwed up college sports in my mind. Yeah. It's just, it's making it worse and worse and worse. Uh, And what's going to happen now with the name image image likeness stuff, you know, the the big boosters that uh, would always give, you know, like a couple hundred thousand to the athletic department and have their skybox and everything. Now they're being asked to employ a handful of players or contribute to a pool that will give them advertising opportunities. Well, now instead of 200 grand going to the school, a hundred's going to go to the school and a hundred's going to go to the players. Right. And that's going to hurt. That's going to create an even bigger have and have not situation. Memphis has a fairly deep, I mean, they've, they've had a fairly decent football program over the last 10, 15 years. They lose money every year. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just consistent. And that's very consistent for a lot of schools. And a lot of schools don't realize that. The other thing is universities are supposed to be here to teach people stuff and to conduct. La, 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 la. I know. <laughs> well, they are. And I, I just, you know, I, there, there was a, there's a professor uh, that I was reading up on who had won a handful of awards. And this freaking guy over a decade or so had brought in $200 million in federal grants for research at their school. This guy by himself is doing more financially for the school than the um, football program because, you know, the cost behind those grants is not nearly what it is behind putting a bunch of people on a plane and taking them to go play football on the other side of the country one weekend. Yeah, well, it all depends on whether you're profitable or not, you know, because... So I I just... I was a huge NASCAR fan. Sometimes they don't even have a full number of cars for a NASCAR race now. Yeah. These things happen in cycles. If you go back 80 years, the two most popular sports in the United States, you want to guess, and I know we're in an hour. You want to guess? In what, I hate what when people year? do that to me, but. In what year? Uh, about, ni- let's say 1930. 1930, I'd say probably like horse racing and baseball. You're one for two, boxing. Okay, that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. It was horse racing and boxing yeah. were our two most popular sports. For a long time, baseball was more popular than football. NFL oh, yeah. is you know, the end-all, be-all of leagues right now. Give it about 20 years. It'll be something else. Things always change. Pickleball. I know you're a football guy, and you don't like that part. But. Pickleball. That's, what's, that's, that's yeah, the fastest. Pickleball. I heard that's the fastest-growing sport in, in the country. It is. My uh, – my daughter over here, when she was 12, some dude on, and we were out in California and some dude, cause she was a great tennis player, wanted to play doubles with her and scam people for money on the beach. That's uh, money and pickleball. Get her. Right, Annie? Yeah. The money and pickleball. The one sport before long. Yeah. Well, hey, it's been, uh, it's been fun uh, as usual, Russell. Thank you everyone for, for tuning in and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week with the Michael guy ad. Uh, don't forget that we do have social media, Instagram, um, you know, uh, untamed underscore ethos on Instagram. We're also, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and, and Russell and I are both on, on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. At the Joshua Wilson and Russell, your handle is my handle is my full name, Russell Rhodes, R H O A D S, at Russell Rhodes. So, thank you everyone uh, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.